Well, I hope everyone had an amazing Christmas season and got to spend it um, with family, as well as I hope you guys each had a great uh, New Year celebration. With a 18-month-old, uh, New Year celebrations are pretty lame nowadays. She was in bed by 7, and I was in bed by 9, and I was reading into the New Year. Super exciting stuff. But with New Year celebrations often come New Year's resolutions. The new year, a new you, right, as the saying goes. And I'm sure many of us in this room made resolutions this very week. Maybe it was the desire to go to the gym more, to run more often, to shed some of those holiday pounds. Maybe it was to read more books throughout a year. Maybe the goal was to read the entire Bible from cover to cover in the year of 2020. Spend less, become more adventurous. Go outside more often. Go hiking. Start a new hobby. The list goes on and on and on. Maybe learn to say no to certain things or say yes to other things. Yet in some sense, as we think through these resolutions and really why we decide to make them, I think it stems from a desire to, to love life and to see the good days. And in our passage today, Peter actually addresses this desire. Yeah, what's interesting is the answer he gives on how we achieve said life and good days doesn't actually often fit into what our mindset is when we come to these resolutions, when we set forward to say, this is what I'm pursuing. Rather, Peter challenges our thoughts on what it means to love life and what it means to actually see these good days. For he shifts our mindset from focusing on the here and now actually focusing on the gift and beauty of eternity. And by, by no means am I saying that New Year's resolutions are bad, that we shouldn't make them. By and large, many of them are great and worthy pursuits. My desire every year is to read more books than I had the year before. But at the same time, we do not want to be people that get caught up on the here and now, that we miss the focus and goal of eternity. Because in reality, God does not care how many resolutions you keep past the month of January. And statistics show that 75% of us in this room that set those resolutions will fail before February 1 comes. You see, he cares how you love him. And he cares how you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And he cares how you love those outside the church outside of Christ. You see, we see today that this path of loving life and seeing the good days is possible in those great moments of life. But as we'll see in this passage, it's also possible in pain and suffering of life. It's possible in persecution of being the exiled Christian. See, it comes down to how we, transformed by the gospel, respond to life circumstances, such as suffering. So kind of the outline we have for today is wrestling through the question, how are Christians to respond to a harmful humanity? And Peter lays out two answers. One, we are to bless others. And we're going to see that in the first half. And number two, we are to defend, because we are to defend the hope we have in that second half. 
So we're going to read verses 8 through 14, that first half of 14, and sit in what does it look like to be a people that bless in response to suffering. Peter says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be so Peter sets the stage for what righteous living actually looks like. From the middle of chapter 2 through today's text, a lot of commentators call this the household code. As he's kind of walking through, being in a household, being a Christian in a household, this is what it looks like. This is the call that we have been given. And as he comes to a close, he shifts from addressing specific people within a household like slaves or like a wife and a husband to just saying, okay, now everybody. In verse 8 where he says, all of you. He's telling the whole Christian community that these are the traits that we ought to have. These are the traits that ought to define what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And that these are the traits that actually help us as a community face persecution, face suffering, face a life of exile. And since he's, he's summarizing here what he's been saying for the last chapter, a chapter and a half, and he lays out these five characteristics. First, he says, we are to have unity of mind. Or in other words, like-mindedness. One commentator said, this is a common heritage of faith an ethical tradition. It's the foundational value and glue that holds this community and that community 2,000 years ago together. It's a unity of mind rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. A group of people that often don't have much in common outside of the gospel. I mean, think about our very community. We have college students and we have young families with, with young kids. People that live for the outdoors and would go hiking every day of their life if they could. And people that think hiking is actually God's punishment to this earth. We have people who are studying to become teachers and then those who actually hate school. We have people that love cats and people that hate cats. Maybe we just have people that hate cats. I don't know if you're like me. We've got Democrats and Republicans, vegans and meat eaters, coffee lovers and coffee haters, sports lovers and sports haters. We even have duck fans among the sea of beaver believers. You see, in all that, though, unity in the gospel is of most importance. It is the glue that holds us together. We can disagree on a lot of things and still fellowship together. But if we disagree on the gospel, we literally dissolve amongst one another. And he said we, we need to be people that, are, that have sympathy. It's an understanding another's point of view. 
It's not a my way or the highway, but it's actually understanding where somebody is coming from. It's rejoicing with those who rejoice and mourning with those who mourn. It's, it's sitting with them in their times of triumph and trial. It's thinking of who Christ was. He was the high priest who sympathized with his brothers and sisters and their weaknesses. And, and brotherly love. Brotherly love obviously is this kinship obligation. You see, it's not as much of a, oh, love them like they are your brother or sister, but love them because they are your brother and sister. The reality is as we come together on a Sunday morning, we are a family unit. Where you are my brother, you are my sister in Christ. Because the reality is through Christ, we are a new creation. The old has gone away, the new has come. And with that, we become the family of God. And so there's true significance in what it means to be a community full of siblings, full of brothers and sisters with God as our father. And he calls us to a tenderheartedness, to a compassion, which this compassion actually flows out of the idea of brotherly love. For in the first century, this, this idea of tenderhearted was directly in the result of a family unit, of showing kindness to one's family members. And lastly, he ends this call with us to be a humble mind, to be lowly-minded, as Edmund Clowney says, Peter sees humility as deeper than the leveling of pride. He finds it in the free humiliation of his Lord, not only in taking the towel and basin, but in taking the cross. This is the lowliness that calls us to humble service. Christian humility will be mocked as Jesus' humiliation on the cross was, but it will be honored by God in the triumph as a returning Lord. So as we look at these five characteristics, we need to ask ourselves, do these five characteristics characterize me? Do they characterize you? Which one of these is so easy for you to live into, and which one of these is a struggle day in and day out to embrace? Jesus' verse calls against this modern Western concept of individualism, and actually calls us to be a community. Because the reality is a number of these things cannot actually be lived out without living in community. You cannot have brotherly love without having brothers and sisters to actually love. See, it's a call to look to others and elevate them above oneself. So I encourage you this week, and even as we look to this new year, to reflect on these characteristics, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. And ask yourself, where do I need to grow this year? Maybe just one of these categories I strive to achieve more in, to honor God through brotherly love, to honor God through a tender heart. May this be a season in which each of us grow in these characteristics. And then Peter continues, and it's out of these five characteristics that he sets the stage for how we are to rightly respond to evil and reviling. In verse 9, he says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. 
For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. You know, our culture often says, an eye for an eye. You respond to evil with evil. I mean, we look at even the U.S.'s relationship with the Middle East right now and see this getting played out. You take one of ours, we're going to take one of yours in return. If you've been wronged, we say you have every right to get what is just deserved. And yet Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Someone asks for your cloak, give him your tunic also. And Peter actually says, we are to bless the other person. How do you respond to hate? How do you respond to evil? You bless them. For that's what we were called to do. See, that is how the Christian gets even, is by blessing the reviler and the evildoer. For we are free from being vindictive and vengeful because we trust God's justice. And we are free to bless others because we know that our God is good. And I know a verse like this is challenging for many of us. Because if you're like me, you have a high justice meter. You don't like to be wronged and you don't like to see others be wronged, especially those that you love. You want to make it right and you want to be right. Yet here, God doesn't say, hey, make things right and get what's deserved. But rather he says, bless. In the face of evil, bless. In the face of revilers, bless. The call of the Christian is a call to bless. So how do we respond to those who have done evil against you? How do you respond to those that have done evil against the ones that you love? I mean, evil is all around us. A day in the news does not go by where we don't hear of some evil atrocity going on in this part of the world or somewhere else. Do you actually bless those that are evil towards you? Evil towards other Christians around the world? Do we pray for their salvation? Do you pray for God's grace to break through in their lives? Or are we a living dichotomy? We believe on one hand that God can save anyone, and yet on the other, we never pray for those that we deem evil. Ultimately saying, I don't think God can actually change that person's heart. See, what does it look like to actually bless an evildoer? What does it look like to bless every violer? Oftentimes, our blessing of these evildoers and persecutors comes in the form of praying praying for them, that seeks their salvation and ultimately seeks their good. I mean, we follow the teachings of Jesus where he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We actually see that coming into effect with Jesus on the cross as he says, forgive, forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they are doing. Or even Stephen, really the first martyr that was stoned for his faith, as he's being stoned, says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. It's praying scripture and praying the gospel over these people. It's praying that their hearts and minds would be opened to 
the beauty and majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. For blessing them as a witness to the gospel. See, the command of verse 9 is rooted in our confidence in the transforming new birth through the gospel. For it's because of the gospel that we can sincerely act and speak blessing to our opponents. While we truly desire that blessing to become a reality. Because we recognize that the very gospel we believe is one of God blessing those who were once evildoers. You see, through Christ, God took rebels, you and me, and made them friends. And not only made us friends with God, but made us family, made us brothers and sisters. The good news is God taking rebels and through Jesus Christ blessing them. And therefore, as Christians, we are called to extend that blessing to other rebels and evildoers. I mean, think once again of the stoning of Stephen. As Stephen was stoned for proclaiming the gospel, he prayed for those who were killing him. And one of those that, that stood by and held men's coats as stones were thrown at Stephen was a man named Saul. And it says in Acts 8 that Saul approved of his execution. And yet one chapter later, God does a mighty work in the life of Saul on the road to Damascus where Saul becomes Paul. And instead of going, for someone, going as someone who persecutes Christians, becomes actually a persecuted Christian. And is arguably the most influential and apostle and leader of the early church praying for blessing into people's lives, seeing what God can do. Or maybe a more modern-day example. In the book Insanity of God, we meet a pastor named Dmitri. He lived in communist Russia and had a thriving house church. The Russian authorities couldn't let this go on. Being a communist nation, they do not want Christianity to be present at all. And so they arrested him, captured him, tortured him, and sent him thousands of miles away from his family to be imprisoned with 1,500 hardened criminals. And for 17 years, in his cell, every morning he rose with the sun, would face east, raise his arms, and sing his heart song to God. And the lines of this song read, O oh God, God. Give me strength to lay my soul down for those close to me and in my heart to the grave. To forgive all wrongdoings of my enemies. Let them throw stones at my chest, not recognizing the feelings of saints. Let them hate, curse. I will lay down my soul for them. For 17 years, he sung that song every and for 17 years, the other prisoners would bang their metal cups, throw food at him, sometimes throw their own waste, human waste at him in an attempt to shut him up. But he stayed faithful to the witness of God. And one morning, these guards came and they took Dimitri because they were going to execute him that day. And this is what it says in the book. The strangest thing happened before they reached the door leading to the courtyard. Before stepping out into the place of execution, 1,500 hardened criminals 
stood at attention by their beds. They faced east, and they began to sing. The heart song that they heard Dimitri sing to Jesus every morning all those years. And in shock, the jailers asked, who are you? To which Dimitri straightened his back and standing tall said, I am a son of the living God. And Jesus is his name. See, as sons and daughters of the living God, we have the same confidence that Dimitri had, that Dimitri still has to this day as he lives in Russia. We can confidently sing a heart song to God in the midst of trials and suffering. We can speak the words of Job, that he says, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Because of what we already have in God, we are able to confidently and boldly bless those who curse and revile us. For no one can take away what we have in God. And, and he continues on and he, he actually quotes, Peter does, he quotes from Psalm 34, which we read the first three verses of in our call to worship this morning. And this psalm points to the world to come, to the good days pointing to this eternal world that God has made new. He says, who is to receive this? It is those who turn away from evil and do good, those who pursue peace. You see, the Christian life is not one of passivity, but it is of activity. It is being active in the ways and calling of God. The blessing Christians receive is this eschatological reward of eternal life through Christ. See, eyes set on eternity with God gives us the strength we need to respond to evil with blessing. The psalm is so powerful because it makes clear that those that do according to God, what God has called them are seen and heard by God. Yet, yet those who do evil, God actually turns away from them. He does not look at them. I don't know about you, but my greatest desire in life is to be seen and heard by God. When we magnify the significance of being seen and heard by God, facing evil with blessing is a rather small task in the grand scheme of seeing the beauty of eternity and what God has for his followers. And Peter concludes his psalm with, with a rhetorical question. He says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? In verse 13. Now this psalm might seem oddly placed because, well, we know there's a lot of people out there that are willing to harm not only these people, not only Peter, but the life of a Christian is one where you could face harm. We have brothers and sisters around the world every day experiencing that. You see, Peter, though it feels like, might be affirming this general expectation that no harm comes to those who do good. We see that he's writing to a people who are targeted and are targets of accusation and suffering. I mean, just looking at this book in chapter 2.12, he says, They speak against you as evildoers. In 3.9, do not repay evil for evil. In 3.14, if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. 4.14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ. And 4.16, if anyone suffers as a Christian. See, the life of a Christian is the life of a sufferer. The way of Jesus is the way of suffering, for he was the suffering servant. So Peter speaks to a suffering people, 
But this rhetorical question is, is in response to Psalm 34. It's in response as he speaks to the world to come. So Peter is saying that ultimately believers will not be harmed on the day of judgment. Rather, God will reward them. He will reward you for your faithfulness. I mean, that's why David in Psalm 56 is able to say, In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. Because what can flesh, what can man do to me? Or think of Paul, he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? When we look at Paul's life, we're like, obviously a lot of people were against Paul. He was scoffed at, stoned, whipped, imprisoned, and ultimately died a martyr's death. And yet he says, who can be against us? When you live in light of eternity, your perspective on the here and now is radically changed. Tertullian, um, an African church father at the beginning of the third century, actually said, prison does for the Christian what the desert did for the prophet. Call it not prison, but the place of retirement. The body is shut in, but all is open to the spirit. It may roam abroad on the way to God. The leg does not feel the chain if the mind is in heaven. The call is to keep your eyes on heaven. Keep your eyes on this good life that God has called us to. When he will return in all glory and majesty to reign. As we keep our eyes on eternity, blessing others in the here and now is possible. It's what we are called to do. And then then he begins to shift in in verses 14b through 17 as we see Peter share another way in which we respond to a harmful humanity. And that's to actually defend what we believe. Starting in the middle of 14, he says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, though you are reviled, your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So he begins speaking of these people that are evil and revilers, and he says, hey, have no fear. Do not be troubled of them. And again, we have to recognize who is telling us this. It's Peter. And we know that Peter knows a thing or two about fear. For three times he rejected Jesus the night that Jesus was betrayed as Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin. Peter even points to the prophet Isaiah as he kind of alludes to Isaiah 8 of realizing that we're not the first people of God to actually experience these threats. In Isaiah 8 it says, do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. You see, the antidote for the fear of men is awareness of the glory of God in himself. See, as we have our eyes set on Christ and our eyes set set on eternity, who are we to fear? What are we to fear? See, as we honor Christ, 
the Lord as holy and we elevate our view of Christ, it minimizes our view of man. For Christ is our sanctuary. Christ is our strong tower. He is the one in which we hide. He is the one in which we hold to. And not only does he call us not to fear them, but he also calls us to respond with, with a defense of the hope that we have. And we have to realize when, when, when Peter was writing this, he didn't have in mind this professional or, or academic aspect of, of Christian apologetics. He wasn't thinking of someone who needed to spend hours studying and reading to feel confident to have this kind of defensive conversation with somebody. No, he speaks of a hope that all believers from the newly converted to the person with the MDiv can articulate and share. See, it's our hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that our Messiah is our sure and steady salvation. And this is a hope we are confident in. It's a hope we can take to the bank. For it is a hope that is grounded in the redemption that Jesus Christ purchased through the cross. As scripture says in 1 Corinthians 15, this is our trusted hope. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You see, our hope is in the resurrected and risen Christ. For he did not stay dead, but he rose and now sits at the right hand of God. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, If in Christ we have a hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But yet our hope is in the power of the resurrection. That just as we die with Christ, we also rise with him. We as Christians defend our faith by proclaiming the gospel because the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the plan and power of God. So could you give a defense? What is the hope you have? How does Christ bring you hope today? In the midst of a rather hopeless world, we We have an eternal hope that is never changing and is never ending. It's the hope that gets us through the day. It's the hope that unites us as a church, as a people. You see, the gospel is the only defense we Christians have. It's the only flag we wave. I plead the fifth is not a sufficient answer. So do you actually have confidence in the gospel? Do you have a boldness to give a defense or are you prone to stay silent? Do we wait for someone else to speak up? Because God wants you to speak up. As it says, always be prepared. It's not a sometimes. Or if no one else is willing, I guess I will. But no, it's an always. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't feel confident in articulating an answer for the hope you have. Maybe you don't feel you have an eloquent or theological enough words to, to fit, to, to say the part. And you know what? That's okay. Because Paul actually, when he went to the Corinthians, he said, I don't come with words of eloquence or human wisdom, but with the testimony of God. 
It's not beautiful, fancy words, but it's the message itself that is our hope. You see, you don't have to know this Christianese jargon to share and to fit the part. The reality is God can use the worst gospel presentation to call someone to himself. For our obedience is not rooted in eloquence of of delivery, but the message in which we deliver. You know, I encourage you to talk to someone you came with or come talk to me afterwards if you're still struggling with this, and I'd love to walk with you through this. Because as a genuine follower of Jesus, you have an answer to the hope. And it's a beautiful, glorious answer. And the more you talk about the hope you have, the easier it gets to share that with others. And I encourage you not just to share the hope with those outside the church, but share the hope with these people in this very room that we do life with. The gospel is not an out there thing. It's a here and there thing. Again, we never move past it. So we should be a gospel people that continually proclaim it to one another day in and day out. And there are those in this room that that have a ready defense. They're very confident in the hope they have. And my my question to you is, what, what is your demeanor? How do you go about sharing of the hope you have. As Peter says here, is, is it with gentleness and respect, or is it like a bowl in a china shop? See, we want to live out the gospel teaching with gentleness and respectfulness of Christ as we share the message of Christ. Sometimes what you say and how you say it are equal in importance. For if we are to be slandered or reviled, may it be for our good behavior and not our evil. As Peter says at the end, he says, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For nothing good comes from suffering for our evil. It is pointless suffering, and it does not benefit us, nor does it bring good to the person in which we're interacting with. You see, we need to share in an appropriate If an offense is to be taken, it ought to be for the gospel message itself and not the manner in which the gospel was proclaimed. We want the seeker to experience the love of Christ because the reality is no matter how hard I try, no matter how hard you try, cannot argue someone into the kingdom of God. For it is not an argument to be won. I cannot create this right equation and poof, out comes a Christian. You see, their hearts need to be warmed and transformed to a work of God and God alone. So tell of the hope you have and pray. Pray that God will do a mighty work in the soul of the listener. As we have seen time and time again throughout this letter, the life of a Christian will be one of suffering as we follow the way of the suffering servant. But may we be a people who respond to suffering well and for God's glory. As 2020 begins, may we make the resolution to be a people who align ourselves to the way of God. May we be a people who respond to evil with blessing and boldly defend the hope in the gospel of our Lord Jesus.